Hey there, today my guest is Rand Park, who teaches at the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management. I first got to know Rand a long time ago when we were both working in the world of higher ed consortia. I was the executive director of the Associated Colleges of the Twin Cities, and Rand was working in development at the Minnesota Private College Council. People kept saying to me, do you know Rand? You must know Rand. You'll love Rand. <laughs> they weren't wrong. We've both moved on from those roles, and today Rand Park is back in the classroom. For the past decade, he's been a senior lecturer in the Department of Strategic Management and Entrepreneurship at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota, where he teaches business ethics and corporate responsibility to both undergrads and graduate students. Rand has a PhD in Organizational Leadership, Policy, and Development from the University of Minnesota, a JD from Hamlin University School of Law, and both bachelor's and master's degrees in English from the University of Georgia. Of course, I think there's something magical about his English degrees, his focus on ethics, and his commitment to teaching. And also, yeah, he's a white guy and the first man I've interviewed on this podcast. But Ran is truly someone I love learning from, and I think you will too. Let's get into the episode. Hey there, welcome to the Uplift Podcast, where we talk all things leadership for women in higher ed. I'm Carol Shabrias, and I want to help make your leadership path a little easier, a bit brighter, and a hell of a lot more fun. Here at the Uplift, we mash up real stories, real feelings, real theory, and occasional bombs, all to help you become the kind of bleeping awesome leader you would love to follow. I'm so glad you're here. Let's jump in. Rand, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here today. Oh, it's great to be here. What I really want to kind of jump into with you is this idea that I'm, I want to say hypothesizing, but it's not even clear enough to be a hypothesis. It's just this idea that I'm kind of like struggling with, which is I think leadership and teaching have core principles in common. And I'm curious to know what other people who teach and what other people who've served in leadership roles think of this idea. And what I'm particularly interested in, and this was in the material I shared with you, but this idea that good teaching is really about the transformation that happens in the learner. It's not in what happens with you standing in the front of the classroom or even walking around if you're teaching in an engaged way. But good teaching is focused on what happens as somebody makes changes in their life and the ways they think and kind of their perspectives on the world. And that good leadership in academic affairs, and I borrowed this from a book on academic leadership, is about teaching and learning. And I think both those things are true. And I'm kind of trying to unpack and untangle those. So the first thing I wanted to ask you, and I know we've talked about this at length, but the first thing I wanted to ask you is what In your teaching, like when you think about extraordinary teaching, and you can tell us how many teaching awards you've earned, it's about the student. What does that look like for you in the classroom? What's what's happening that draws you to be the kind of teacher? And what do you do to embody this that actually creates those kinds of transformations for students? Well, I think the number one thing for me, um, and it was a lesson that I learned 
through the years of sort of part-time adjunct teaching, which, you know, was a different kind of, it was at night, it was grad students who had come from a long day. But, you know, when I was first teaching, I had an idea of what a teacher was supposed to look like and the kind of the way a teacher was supposed to carry themselves and wanted to sort of embody that and realized very quickly that you can't pretend to be somebody else and have a really meaningful connection with your students. You have to be authentic. And I know that sounds, you know, like a, a, a inspirational quote that you paint on a board and hang in your lot, you know, but really being who you are. So I, I will often tell people, you know, I spent most of my elementary and high school years getting in trouble for talking too much, telling jokes and drawing cartoons. And now I get paid for all of that because <laughs> I can't do anything other than be myself. Yeah. And so I tell jokes, I talk, I write. You should see the whiteboards that I do. I fill up, I have multiple, and this is an adjunct thing. I, you, you never know if you're going to have markers. So you bring your own markers. Right. Well, I discovered that I like lots of different colors. And so I draw little cartoon faces and I draw colorful arrows and I'll fill a whiteboard during the course of class, not because I'm trying to impress anybody, but because it's literally how I think mm -hmm. <laughs> it's literally how I just, you know, and so I'll use a PowerPoint deck that'll be projected above the whiteboard. And that will be sort of, you know, that's a episodic slide at a time. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm connecting the concepts and, you know, visual elements on the whiteboard as I talk. And nobody taught me to do it that way. That's just who I am. And so, you know, I'm, I'm at that point where I feel like I'm fortunate <laughs> that I get paid to just show up and be who I am. But I know that the students seem much more receptive when they know that it doesn't look like I'm trying to, like, do something. You know, like, I'm not trying to manipulate them. I'm not trying to force a square peg into a round hole. And if I get excited about what I'm talking about and I tell them why, why we're doing this assignment why this concept is important, why they will more willingly, I think, kind of come along for the ride and think about some of the things that I'm presenting. And so, um, you know, I feel like in, in, in some way, and also, so I have a varied career path. I think you and I've talked about this before. I went to law school. I worked at a publishing company. I worked in higher ed administration. I eventually worked in fundraising. Along the way, I served on the board of directors of a healthcare company. I did some other things. Let's not forget that you were an English major because that's super important. I think it's the most important thing. I was an English major who got a master's degree in English, decided not to pursue a PhD, thinking that a higher ed, being a professor, was not going to be my calling. But eventually it kept calling. But my students, I feel like when I say, wow, I did this, but then I did this, and they also find that really nice because you know 30 or oh my goodness so long ago i graduated from high school 40 years ago when i graduated from high school 40 years ago college cost like you know two dollars yeah. <laughs> not really but you know it wasn't so high stakes it wasn't we weren't in that sort of arms race of tuition and prestige and rankings I grew up in the state of Georgia and I went to the University of Georgia because that's just that was just what I did. 
So to, to be able to talk to the students about, you know, okay, yes, yes, you're in the business school. Yes, you're studying for a career. Yes, you're probably many of you borrowing some money to do it. Um, it, it, it the most important thing is you know, learn some things along the way, get the degree in hand, because that's an important thing, but you may do six or seven different things, you know, and your life can look like this. And, you know, it, not every professor that the students have had that, but to be, for me to be able to say, wow, I did this, I did that, I did some other things. Hey, everything worked out, right? Then they seem to also feel somewhat affirmed that any insecurities that they're having about maybe what they're studying, it's okay. Because I have somebody talking to me right now who's saying, it's going to be fine. You're going to figure it out. Eventually, you're going to figure out what you're doing. I, um, I remember when I was uh, on my law school alumni board, I used to do volunteer mock interviews. And I had this young woman who was, had come to Hamlin to go to law school. And she had grown up in Kentucky. And she had done all things equestrian. She had ridden horses, trained horses, all the horse, all the horse things. And now she was in law school and I was doing the mock interview with her and we were talking. I said, I had a resume and I said, so um, tell me about coming to, to law school. What, I would like to be a corporate attorney. Oh, okay. And um, what about some of your passions and interests? I would like to be a corporate attorney. And I'm like, your resume is full of horse things. You're from Kentucky. You have done all these things. And, and, and I said, you know, there's a lot of money in horse. <laughs> there's a lot of laws. There's a lot. I mean, it is entirely possible for you to take this law degree and still do lots of stuff related to things that you have a passion about. It doesn't have to be, this was my passion and now I'm going to switch. Yeah. And, um, so I try to embody that for my students, right? I went to law school. I'm not practicing law. I'm doing some other things. I have have students that come to my office hours and say, I am passionate about the theater. I love going to plays. I love, you know, community, but I'm really not going to ever make a living on stage. But I love theater. But I'm here in the business school. What should I do? And I'm like, major in accounting. Because every theater in the country <laughs> has an accountant. Yeah. Every, right, you can do something functional. I said, there's so, there's no shortage of people with passion and creativity. There's a shortage of people who can count and read a ledger sheet, right? If, if you can do functional, technical things that benefit an organization, you can work at an art museum. I think I, in our previous conversation, told you my daughter. Yeah. works in an art museum running their website. She doesn't paint. She's not a curator. She's a technical person who works in the communications area. And every day she goes to work in this beautiful art museum and is around people who have a passion for art. So in in my, I mean, it, it may be more pronounced for business students because when people come to the business school, they often feel like they have a very linear path. Yeah. And so the other interesting, so I, I think I told you before, I, the class I teach is business ethics and corporate responsibility, sustainability. My class is an intentional. So it's a first, they take it in their first year. But um, so many of the classes in the business school are one inch wide and about 10, inch, you know, 10 feet tall. Yeah. Right? I'm going to do a deep dive on accounting. I'm going to do a deep dive on supply chain. Yeah. So I've intentionally 
created my class to be a broad and, you know, so we'll touch on accounting, we'll touch on marketing ethics and human resources, ethics and supply chain in an effort to give them some connectivity across. And I feel like they, they need to know how it hangs together. They kind of need to know the why they need to know the, the sort of synthesis along with the analysis. You know, if, if along the way, when you're talking about your class, you say, okay, so today we're going to talk about accounting fraud. Why is accounting fraud unethical? Well, if I show you my audited financial statements that shows that I'm making a zillion dollars a year and you're trying to find a company to invest in, you would probably say, wow, they're making a zillion dollars a year. I'm going to invest in that company so that I too can make a zillion dollars a year. But what if I'm lying to you? If you knew the truth, would you buy my stock? No, I'm intentionally deceiving you to get you to do something you wouldn't otherwise do. So that's the categorical imperative, right? That's Immanuel Kant saying the intent of the actor is how we're going to judge the rightness or wrongness of the action. Now let's back it up. You know, Enron accounting, fraud, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, any of these sort of huge issues are just a macro version of the little white lie. You know, the little, what if your books aren't, what if your sales numbers aren't just quite good enough to get a bonus? Might you consider cheating just a little bit? Well, you know, then all of a sudden we brought this huge issue down to something that's very, very specific, but it's the same kind of idea. And so when you, so we talked about it. So a few weeks later, we get into advertising and I show them this ad with Matt Damon talking about crypto.com fortune <laughs> favors the brave. And I'm like, there's literally nothing in this ad that has anything to do with the risks, with the underlying about what is cryptocurrency? What is blockchain? It's all about being like Matt. Oh, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to be like Matt Damon, right? Is he intentionally getting people to invest in crypto, knowing that these he's not really telling people the truth, the full truth? Sure. Okay, let's go back. So to be able to connect the dots across from accounting to marketing and talk about it being kind of the same thing, I think makes it... Uh, I think students find that to be because they then, from a leadership perspective, are more in control of their own narrative and analysis. Instead of just having discrete little chunks of information, they're putting things together and making those connections. And that's, I think, good leadership is empowering people to, to make better decisions. And I think that's you know, you want to teach, you want to help guide people. I mean, I, I had a, an MBA student one time tell me when I was teaching my class, say, you know, there's literally nothing you've told me today that I didn't already know. It, it, most of this is common sense, right? Don't do bad things, do good things, right? You know, but it's like you take, you take the object, you take the thing and you turn it 45 degrees, right? And you take a look at it from a different perspective, right? You say, okay, you're going to do a stakeholder analysis. This is the way it looks. Standing in your shoes, this is what the problem looks like. You're the manager at Walmart. You're trying to decide who to promote, right? What if you talked about it from the perspective of 
this woman of color who has been passed over promotion the last two to three times, not because you're an overt, horrible, racist person, but because she's not in the break room, hanging out and laughing with everybody else, right? You're like, you're like, oh, I know who the good people are to promote because they're the people who are friendly and talk to me and the people I hang out with. And you're like, well, is that really the best way to do talent management? Is that really the best way to let's put yourself in the shoes of this worker. Okay. So I do this with the Betty Dukes versus Walmart case. She was a minimum wage worker at Walmart who was passed over for promotion. And eventually she and a number of women brought would have been the largest class action lawsuit in us history against Walmart because the managers were not given any guidance by Walmart about who to promote. Managers around the country were just given free reign to promote whoever they wanted. Shocking, not shocking. They promoted a lot of white dudes and not other people. So if you're a student and you say, okay, how would it feel if you were doing a good job working, showing up and just being constantly ignored? Is that the kind of environment that you would want to work in? Well, no, I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. Well, maybe it looks a little different. So same issue, but put yourself in the shoes of a different stakeholder. Put yourself there, right? So if I could talk about gender um, discrimination, most of the women in the room will be nodding their heads. Some of the guys will be like, oh, like, let's talk about sexual harassment. Would you want someone to talk to your mother like that? How about your sister? Right. How about your daughter? Is it different? If it's different, then you're not thinking about big picture, right? So finding ways to get people to think about things from different perspectives gives you a better chance. So I do teach about leadership um, in my classes. I use Edgar Schein's research on leadership mechanisms. And the, the essential takeaway is you can have the best code of ethics. You can have the best compliance team you can have all these things, but the leaders, what the leaders say, how leaders react to crisis, the actual things the leaders do, the role modeling, the criteria for selection and dismissal, who they hire and who they fire or don't fire, and then the allocation of rewards, who they promote. Those actions drive the culture of an organization. Yeah. More than any. And, and so, to give my students those examples of those. I have a video of Jeff Skilling saying, money's the only thing that matters to anybody and money's the only thing that matters in Enron. Are we shocked to learn that people cut all kinds of corners to show profit when that was clearly told to them by their leader that that was the number one priority? Probably not shocking. You said something a minute ago that I'm, I'm gonna carry with me for a long time, that good leadership empowers people to make good decisions. And you were talking about um, the ways you like draw connective threads for your students. And what I, what I felt was this sense of your, your content being sticky so that the students had like multiple ways of hanging on to it. And even as that's happening and they're like able to like tack pieces here and there, so they're all attached. They're also, if they're being empowered to make good decisions, they're also having autonomy and ownership over their own growth and their own thinking and their own ideas. And, and it, I'm, I'm kind of interested in hearing you talk about that and the, 
the work of a leader, like even the work of a campus leader. Um, I don't even have a question, Rand. I'm just struck that I know when I have been someone's employee or direct report, what I have loved most is being trusted to think and solve problems and kind of do things. And that's the student in me, right? Like that's what I loved in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think it's necessarily, and I'm thinking back to your opening point about you had an idea of what a teacher is. I think a lot of leaders have an idea of what a leader is and you put on the suit and you walk into the room and you command the presence, right? But that doesn't get people feeling connected and autonomous and curious and empowered. Um, So like, I don't know. I don't, I wish I could ask you a decent question in there, but let me just ask you to ruminate on that. Like what, what comes up for you as I try and tie those pieces together? Well, I think so. Prior to my time being a full-time teacher, I was in administration, right? And I had leadership roles but I never really had a lot of direct reports. So my job was pretty much always, you're in charge of this. And now I need you to get all these other people who don't report to you to do things so that we can make progress. So I would have like one employee. I've never had, I've never sat at the top of the org chart. And that's probably because I'm very uncomfortable. I mean, that's just not me. I'm a very good individual contributor. And it turns out I'm also really good at, talking to people and helping guide things indirectly. I'm not in charge of doing your performance review, but I'm going to tell you why it's really important for you and I to do this thing and convince you to do. So I, I will laugh out a quick inter. So teaching business ethics, one thing that I've learned, I do some executive education, mm-hmm. which is the non-credit. You know, somebody is doing a management certificate. They're not doing a full MBA. They take, you know, and so in those environments, um, you know, I'm doing one this week. Uh, students from a company will come and they will take a class on intro to, you know, basics of accounting, basics of marketing, executive presence, ethics and leadership. And so uh, one time I was doing something for a corporate client. And when you do, when you do the pay for play corporate client stuff, all illusions of sort of being academically independent, you know, you, a company hires you to teach a thing. And so you have a meeting where you say, okay, here's my content. They're like, okay, more of that, less of that. And even if you know that probably it shouldn't quite be that way, you sort of help take what you do and you fit it in because you're getting paid and it's very transactional. And you, you know, I mean, my, the way I draw the line on that stuff is if they get, if it gets too far, I just say no. And I can also do that because that's what markets are. Right. So one time I had a head head of uh, a company was, the students were going to come in and do this, you know, all these different things. And one of them was ethics. And the guy from their compliance office was the guy where I was working with. And he said, I gave him, I talked about all my things. And I said, you know, the best organizations are ones where, you know, people really want to do the right thing and leaders work to create opportunities for people to, you know, through suggestions and nudges and choices and kind of go through the behavioral psychology of putting people in a position to make good decisions. And he said, well, I, I, I really think we should change the title. And I think, because I think we should call this driving performance through compliance. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, if you want compliance, oh. <laughs> the last thing you want to do is drive performance through compliance. Let me talk to you a little bit more about this, the, the personal, you know, the, the social psychology around c- 
creating an environment through your words, your actions, your reaction to crisis, who you hire, who you fire. How do you create an opportunity for people to want to do that? So back to my previous thing about sort of leadership and higher education, you know, I was never in a position to just tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. Generally, that was not my job. So at one point in time, I was the director of corporate relations at the Carlson School of Management. I was in the corporate and foundation relations. So instead of having a portfolio of major gifts, personal individual giving, I worked with companies. Mm -hmm. It was a little more transactional and you would put together a proposal or the company would come to you and you you would do some of these things. Well, if you think about a business school, which is public facing and touches. So let's think about, let's say you're Cargill or General Mills or any company. I don't want to pick any specific company. Let's say you're a Fortune 500 company in the Twin Cities, of which there are many, right? How are you connected to the Carlson School? Okay, so from my perspective, you are a donor, right? From the career services office, you're an employer. Right. From the alumni relations side, you have an affinity group. You have the Carlson alumni group at your company. From the uh, supply chain side, you might actually be using some research on, right? So we have different groups at the Carlson School that have relations outside the school. And we don't always know what each other is doing. Mm -hmm. So what I did was created, and, and I'm not, this is not new to me. Other people have done this in the past, but what I recognized the need for was we got to figure out a way to, to talk to each other or to know what's going on. Now, if you think about it, there's a lot of ways you could do this, right? You could say, I'm going to create a Google sheet and everybody types in what they do. And then whenever it's time to interact, you go and look at the Google sheet. Do you enjoy looking at Google sheets <laughs> of other people? Like that, it, 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 it's not right. Where can it, we can create this. So what I did was I said, look, what works for me? What am I good at? I'm good at talking and facility. So once a month, I would have the corporate relations council. I would have somebody from the home center from entrepreneurship, somebody from the international programs office, somebody from the career services office. Somebody, and we would just all sit around the room and everybody reported. And I will, I'll do a little humble brag here in that I was always the secretary because I was really super mindful early on in my career of women being said, you know, why do I have to be the secretary? And I'm like, okay, so I took the notes, but we would go around the room and everybody would give their top two or three activities they were doing that month with certain companies. And we would just, one, and it was really quick. I kept it moving, boom, 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 boom. By the time we got about halfway around the table, we were already starting to see, it's almost like coding, a you know, a, a, analyzing a document, right? You're like, oh, three people have already mentioned Cargill, right? Oh, here's this thing coming up. Oh, and then somebody would hear and, and they'd be like, hey, what about that? And I'm like, okay, you guys, we're, we're not going to talk now, but I'm going to end this meeting 15 minutes early and you guys need to take it up then, right? So we talked for about half an hour. I would write everything down. I would do a matrix and show where just for that particular one, we would break everybody who had been sitting across the table like, hey, I need to. Yeah, yeah. And so everybody would, everybody would talk and everybody would leave. I would write up some notes. I'd email them out to everybody. And then the next month we do it again. It was dynamic. It was live. People were looking at each other. And so 
I use I talk about psychological distance all the time in my ethics class. If you can't picture the stakeholder that your actions are affecting, it's no. easier to do things that might harm them or that might be selfish. But if you see the person across the table that you're interacting with, you're more self-governing. You do a better job. So we did a better job instead of the sort of classic academic model of resource scarcity and fighting for survival. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were always meeting in a sort of public functional, non-competitive way to make those little sticky connections somewhat informal, somewhat formalized by the fact that we had a monthly meeting. And, but the reason it worked was because that's how my leading style worked. Yeah. (laughs) Because I could tell a joke or tell somebody to be quiet without pissing them off or say, okay, great move. We got to do this. A different person might've done it differently. In fact, the next person after me did it differently. Yeah. But that for me turned out to be a super effective way of helping people. Again, what's a, what's a decision you don't want to have? We used to, one thing the university used to talk about the four or five, like I think it was Target or one company got donation, you know, gift proposals from five different campus units all in the same day. Yeah. (laughs) With no coordination at all. Right. And so you don't want, you want Cargill, you want these companies to feel valued, but you also want, when they show up, they want to know that we all know what we're doing. What you're doing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So the two things that, that come to mind as I'm listening to you talk about that is one, you're talking about leadership as facilitating other people's work, right? Kind of opening the doors, seeing making it possible for them to see where they can do their work better, like rather than dictating what they could do, which I think is interesting um, for people to think about when they think about their own leadership, their approach to kind of directing folks work. But I'm also really struck both personally and professionally by this idea that you keep kind of coming back to that is, um, and you haven't said this, this is my interpretation, but that Leadership is different when you focus your leadership on people than it is when you focus your leadership on the institution. Sort of where's your affiliation? Who are you looking out for? And I have always felt, both as an employee and as a leader, that if you don't look out for your people, there's no institution anyway. So the only point is to look out for the people but I know a number of attorneys who would disagree with me. <laughs> I don't know where your legal training comes down on that. But so I'm thinking about this this challenge that that I've lived um, as a campus employee, where you have a leadership team that's so focused on protecting the institution in a number of ways, and not necessarily for bad reasons, and not like not your Enron type of story. But this, but protecting the institution comes at the expense of caring for the people. And I'm wondering just kind of randomly if there's any connection, and this is not a question because I, I don't think this is an answerable question, but if you take the kind of person in higher ed who stands in front of a classroom and lectures and you put them in a leadership role, are they more likely to be the kind of leader that doesn't kind of look out at the room of people and wonder how to get the most of them out of them, right? This sort of like focuses on something that's easy to deliver. Um, I don't know. That's just, some, somebody said this to me the other day that you can have really great teachers who are lousy administrators 
and really lousy teachers who are great administrators. I don't know that you can have really lousy teachers that are great. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen lousy teachers be great teachers, be lousy administrators, because I think great teachers are so focused on people. Now I'm kind of rambling, but um, I'm interested in this idea and I'd love to hear you, you, you talk about it from, um, and maybe you have, okay, now I, my brain is just kind of going around like this idea of um, teaching students that personal perspective, seeing, seeing it in action on a campus. And, and also like you're, you are kind of soft pedaling in that story away from your leadership because you know, you, you like being an individual contributor and you've never been kind of the sole person on top of the org chart. I'm wondering if there's something, and this is, this is an honest question, just kind of chatting. I'm wondering if there's something about that leading from the side, that leading through influence that connects to a more facilitative leadership as opposed to a more kind of top-down leadership. I don't know. You've just got my wheels turning on some things I hadn't really put into words before. Well, I think, so part of it is, and this is maybe why I didn't like the practice of law, is that I, I am not a big fan of the high stakes decision. Mm. I don't want to be the person, because in my experience, the people who make high stakes decisions are often not the most popular people. Mm -hmm. And if you are like me, a person who likes for people to like you, and like me, a person who likes to be the joy and light in a room and to have a good time, it is hard there because there are people you who need to make those hard decisions. Mm -hmm. And some people are better wired at doing that. The best leaders can kind of do both. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but I will say that, so there was a time in my life when I thought I wanted to be a leader at the top of the pyramid mm -hmm. and because I wanted the positional authority, I wanted the prestige. I thought about the money. It, it looked as someone looking from the outside in that if you wanted to be important and powerful and have a lot of money that you would aspire to be at the top of whatever organization you were going to be. And it is also the case that there's the traditional academic path, but because I had been in the world of fundraising and development, I had seen people who were good fundraisers ascend mm -hmm. into roles of leadership, mm -hmm. sometimes even to be presidents of colleges. Um, so the experience that I had, I had two experiences that helped me to know that this was not going to be for me. And the first one was the actual amazing opportunity when I was the vice president for fundraising at the Minnesota Private College Council, because the board of directors of the Private College Council are the 17 college presidents and some community board members. So I got to meet 17 college presidents over the course of two years. I got to, sometimes I would drive them to the airport. Sometimes I would, you know, have a committee. I met, you know, the president of Augsburg, the president of Concordia Moorhead, you know, the president of all these different places. And um, to listen to them talk about their job and the kinds of decisions. And 
especially in small private colleges, the existential crisis mm-hmm. of running a small private college, keeping the, all the stakeholders happy, you know, the delicate balance of being, you know, providing the academic rigor, yet being flexible. How do you increase diversity? How do you cultivate donors? How do you, it, it, so many of those decisions were high stakes decisions that I just, in terms of the way my mind works and the way I'm built, I knew I would be an absolute wreck <laughs> to be put in that situation. Um, you know, I, I often joke with my students at the Carlson School that nobody dies on the operating table around here, right? Literally nothing we do in this building is going to result in anyone dying, unlike, say, the medical school or in the engineering school where you're building a bridge, the cars, you know, like, we are we are basically doing paperwork <laughs> and spreadsheets <laughs> yeah. and making, you know, I mean, a lot of what we're doing is not is not that. The second experience that I had mm-hmm. was our the dean of the Carlson School, who's just retiring now, Sri Zahir, um, who had come up through our faculty. Um, and she and I had a very good relationship. Um, she was always incredibly supportive of me. In my second year teaching, we got she got invited to a conference at the University of Colorado. And um, it was a conference for deans, people who teach business ethics, and people from the business community. And so she had been invited and she said, let's go. And because you're in the second year of this job, um, it'd be a good experience for you to go to this conference. Then we'll drive down to Denver and do a alumni event. You know, we'll wrap it all together. And so obviously I felt very validated to have been asked. And so, but if you've ever been, have you ever been to Denver? Only the airport. Okay. But have you ever driven from the airport into Denver? No. Okay. It's really far. Like <laughs> you fly into Denver and you get a car and then you drive and drive and drive and drive. And then, and then we drove up to Boulder, we drive and drive and drive, drive, drive. So I was driving with the Dean in the passenger seat with her phone being a Dean. Mm-hmm. So I got the front row seat of her doing the Dean thing. Mm-hmm. We also got to talk a lot. Like, you know, I, we weren't ever going to be sitting with each other for hours talking about things. We drove up to Boulder, we'd go out to dinner, we'd go, we did all these things. And um, having already done the private, co- this was after I'd left the private college council and met all those presidents, but none of whom I'd ever really had a like heart to heart. Yeah. So here I have the Dean uh, you know, she's the chair of the Federal Reserve. I mean, she's a big, she's big time. She is, you know, but so human and so normal and it's just a good person to talk to. And so I was talking to her about what is it like to be a dean? What is it like? And I think I don't, I can't imagine that she would be upset with me for sharing this, but I mean, so let's imagine she'd come from the faculty. She she and her husband joined Carlson. They were faculty together. And then she moved up. She became, you know, she said it's really lonely. Mm-hmm. you can't hang out with the faculty mm-hmm. that you used to do mm-hmm. because you now are making macro level decisions. And, and I say this because I'm, I, I mean, academics are professional complainers. We're really good at complaining. We can do analysis. We can <laughs> complain. Right. So, you know, she it's really lonely. And I said, I don't like to be lonely. I like to be around a lot of people. (laughs) And she said, and and as she said, and people aren't always very happy with me. And I said, but I like for people to be really happy. I want to be the sunshine and light when I walk into a room. I want people to be happy to see me. I want to be around people. I want to, I'm a highly social person. 
I like to facilitate and conciliate and bring people together. And she's like, I don't think this kind of leadership role, like a dean or a president, yeah. is really based on what you want out of life. And that I, I and she wasn't being critical. And I I mean it I it resonated with me that that there are some and I I desperately want people to be in those roles that make tough decisions. Right. When I'm on the operating table and the yeah. surgeon is trying to decide whether to cut here or there. And, you know, there's trade-offs and things have to happen. I want somebody who's there doing that hard decision, right? It's like Gardner's multiple intelligences. I think you have to have multiple kinds of leadership. Yeah. And sometimes the best leadership teams meld some of the different kinds of yeah. leaders to do those kinds of things. I think about, so I think one of the readings that you shared about uh, the higher ed fra- reframing is either mm-hmm. Bowman or Deal. I can't remember, but Bowman and Deal, there's a, a, a book called Reframing Organizations that I use in my class sometimes about the four frames, right? You've got the, the factory or the machine, you've got the family, you've got the jungle, and you've got the, the carnival, right? And all organizations have a little bit of each one, but often leaders will come up from one part of the organization and then they're in charge of the whole organization. So how do you take somebody from the sales department? It's like, get it done, whatever you got to do, 110%. And now you're in charge of the auditing team, <laughs> you know, who's like, we follow the rules. Mm-hmm. We give exactly 100%. What do you mean? There's no such thing as 110%, right? Or flip it around. Like you come up from the auditing and accounting and the you're a you know super detailed person and now you're in charge of the sales team. <laughs> and they're like all over the place. And you're like, we've got rules. And they're, yeah. they're like, oh, rules are meant to be bent. And, you know, right. So their thesis in that particular text is that to be a good leader, you have to get out of your own frame and understand and become more multivalent and learn how to lead. And to take it back to teaching, I feel like, and I know this is, it kills me that this has been. <laughs> This has been uh, now debunked, but I grew up thinking that there were different learning styles, that some people are more visual and some people are auditory and some people are kinesthetic. And evidently the research is that that none of that actually is true, but it certainly felt true to me. (laughs) (laughs) And so as I'm teaching my students, I have some students who really want what is, what do I need to do to make the, what is the functional nuts and bolts of this class. I'm like, no, I want you to have joy and have fun. And they're like, no, 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 I need, you know, it's like the great UPS commercial from like a decade ago. It's still, it still sits with me. It's this, the the commercial opens up and there's this panorama of a city and a skyscraper and it zooms in on the top floor. And there's this Steve Jobs looking guy. He's like, today we have to think outside the box. And then the elevator zooms down all the way down and then there's the basement and there's the package room and the guy's like, but sometimes your job is to think about the box. (laughs) (laughs) And I think about that with my students, like some need to have that. Some of my students love the visuals and the cartoons and like the videos. Some students want to talk to each other. So the small group, you know, I'm talking and now we break and now we do some small group stuff. And now we come back, you know, this is to who may never raise their hand, may never interact with me, but they will do it with somebody else. So if my teaching style is only one way, 
I'm going to miss some of those other, yeah. right? If my leadership style is only one way, I'm not going to be able to affect the change I want to affect or shape the culture the way I want to shape it. If teaching, once again, you got to, I think you have to decenter yourself, right? You have to take yourself out and you have to say, okay, what if I'm sitting in that, what if I'm sitting in that seat and I'm neurodivergent? Yep. And I, I, my brain does not work the way everyone else's brain works. Can I be successful in this class? And maybe one way I can be successful in this class is to have a professor who says, we all learn in different ways. We're all going to, you know, if, if this isn't working for you, reach out to me. I have students who have official certified letters from the Disability Resource Center that say I get extra time on an exam. I've had students come to me and say, I took, I didn't have enough time on the last exam. I don't have a DRC letter. I think I could do better if I had 15 more minutes. You know, I think I, you know, in, in some people might be like, oh, they're just trying to cheat. They're just, you know, like you can kind of tell when students are, you know, if you have a student from another country for whom English isn't their first language and they're like, wow, your test is really English heavy, <laughs> really Maybe, do you mind if I have a little more, you know, and now that I've moved my exams online, thanks to the pandemic, I can do all kinds of custom things. I can give somebody 15 extra minutes based upon that conversation that I don't think is necessarily unfair to everybody else. Right. 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 But, you know, uh, so any, any number of different situations that students have, um, you know, obviously you want to be, you want to be consistent as possible. You want the assessments to be rigorous. You want people, but I mean, and I, I will say this, it's never going to happen, but after teaching first year students for 10 years, I am now of the, absolutely of the opinion, every 1000 level class at every college should be pass fail. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. The first year of college, people come in from really elite private high schools and countries, little almost one one room schoolhouses you've got international students you've got people who come from families that have the vocabulary and language of higher ed and understand the shadow rules you have people who are first generation college students who have no clue yeah at the end of the first year everybody's kind of more starting at the same starting line the first i get students in it's all over the map and yet i'm supposed to grade you know like I have students who get a C, for example, the smartest kid in the room might get a C because they're just learning how to college. Right. They, they don't have any knowledge of how to college and yet they're brilliant. I just, and so I, but like I said, I don't think we're ever going to get there, but I do feel like, you know, meeting the kind of the students where they are, helping them as much as they can reminds me of my days being a leader and not actually having any direct reports. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Getting them to sort of, how do I get everybody to sort of move together and herd this group of, you know, wildly oscillating molecules. And we can, we're going to kind of try to keep things together. And so we need those kinds of leaders as well as the high stakes leaders. And maybe some people can confidently do both. I think it's also good to know just from a personal health mental health and physical health perspective that putting yourself in a leadership role that you're not constitutionally 
prepared for or that you really want for yeah. the right reasons, the the disconnect, the discontinuity can be really egregiously damaging to your mental health and to your you know well-being. I think there's a you know, I, I do feel like there's a, a, a sorting as it will. I mean, I, I've, I've counseled, it's happened a couple of times where students are like, my parents want me to go to business school. I don't want to go to business school. I got to do something else. And, and they're like, and, and I'm like, well, I didn't go to business school. <laughs> and right. like, you know, maybe, maybe being an English major or a philosophy major is better for you at this point in time. You can always get an MBA, you know, I mean, the fact that some people do an undergrad degree in business and then come back and do an MBA, which is essentially round two of all the same content, it's really not that different. It's almost better to do something else first. And, you know, so. I'm wondering if there's this kind of circular iteration where um, as, as you're talking about essentially professional discernment, I'm wondering if that's easier for students who've been in a class where like in your classrooms, where they are encouraged to see multiple unrelated things kind of stick together and find their way through them and kind of feel their way to what feels right to them and what feels interesting and sort of having that chance to um, really come to understand themselves through content as well as understanding content. And I'm wondering if that like recursive practicing that over and over through your life then helps you get to a point when you can be 48 and say, yeah, I don't think being a college president is really the thing I want to do. I also used to think I wanted to be a college president and now like you couldn't pay me enough. You just, you, they're literally, you could not pay me enough. Um, but I, 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 I think I have, well, I have two points. One is a question. And then I actually have a real closing question for you, but Listening to you talk about the different kinds of leadership skills that are required kind of struck, stuck like a light bulb went off for me because I, here's, here's my observation about myself that has come to me through this conversation. I think I have this really teacher focused and naive belief, but I'm going to cling to it because it, it makes me happy that if you are that authentic person you described at the beginning, right? If you know who you are and you know how to communicate in a way that is transparently you so that people believe when they're talking to you that they're getting you, they're not getting the filtered you, they're not getting the corporate you, they're getting you. If you can do that, then I think you can lead, you can lead through crises, you can lead through downturns, you can lead through all sorts of traumas, you can lead in successful times. If you can couple that authenticity with the ability to tell the truth, like what you were talking about with students, here's why we're doing what we're doing, here's the purpose behind it, and here's where it's going to get us. If you can do that and be authentic about it, then I think you can be a leader at the top that makes high stakes decisions. People may not like you for it. They may not like your decision, but they're far more likely to not hate you. They're far more likely, I think, to feel respected, to feel seen, to feel heard, to say things like, I don't really like that decision, but I do understand it. I disagree with it, but I understand it. Um, I think that's kind of, for me, that's the key. Like, I think that's what makes for really successful leadership. But listening to you, I'm thinking, 
And also maybe you can have a leader who is a high stakes decision maker who, instead of being the person I just described, empowers their, so take a college president, that college president is going to make all those painful, publicly unpopular, high stakes decisions. But if they have a cabinet that they have empowered to make good decisions, and that cabinet is empowered to empower like downstream, down and down and down throughout the ranks of the institution, then you can have a leader who's that kind of high stakes decision maker and also have that really beautiful thing that I want, which is the self-recognition, the autonomy, the mastery, the coming to work, feeling fulfilled, and like you understand what you're doing because you've got a leader who's helping you see your place in all of that. And I hadn't really, I maybe because I haven't experienced it. I haven't experienced an autocratic tyrant of a president, I have, but I have not experienced one who also empowers their cabinet. And maybe that's um maybe that's an alternative that that I'm gonna spend some time pondering that um maybe the top leader doesn't need to be everything. Yep. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you one more story. Yeah. And then I want you to tell us what you think we should read to help become the kind of leader that you're describing. All right. So um, I think another issue that we have in higher ed when it comes to leadership at the highest levels is that we have created such a narrowing pipeline Mm -hmm. and process that we are not getting the kinds of intentional leaders that can do a lot of these things because we, we, I say, I'm using the Royal, we, because there is an entire ecosystem of search consultants and, uh, you know, search firms and uh, carefully curated types that people have to fit into a certain type of role. Yeah. And very, and I'm, I, I am not an expert in all of these areas, but in a, in a very sort of masculinist uh gendered kind of way so that even women who want to participate often have to take on a very masculine persona yeah. to be taken seriously. So I was at a case, you know, Council for Advancement and Support of Education. That's the professional org for fundraisers. And so the MLA, <laughs> but, but from fundraising, right? <laughs> so you go to your conference and I've presented at case conferences before and I've attended and at one case conference that I went to in Chicago, it was the regional case conference. They had a um, breakout session on going from advancement to the presidency. Mm. And I'm like, and this was, you know, back in, before I had discerned. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to this room and I've told people this before I walked in. And there was this group, it was, they were all kind of sitting together, but there was this gaggle of people who were pretty much all men. They were all tall. They all had on suits. Mm-hmm. They all had silver hair. And I'm saying all, but I'm like, no, I and know then there was the rest of us, the yeah. flotsam and jetsam of higher education, all the round and brown and not fitting 
And there was, I told my wife, I said, it, it looked like a funeral home director's convention. Oh. <laughs> and, and so, and this was, and so the three college presidents that were, and this was many years ago, but they were from small private colleges in Wisconsin talking about how they got to their roles. And then, and so there were some of us who were like, well, and this was clearly not done my homework, but I'm like, you guys post these jobs. We see them in the Chronicle. Like people just apply. Can you just apply for these jobs? And there's laughter <laughs> from the, from the dais. From, and they're like, well, no, you have to, you have to get in with corn Ferry. You have to get in with the, the search consultants. You um, have to be willing to move your family every 18 months from coast to coast. You have to be willing to, you sort of get into this pool and then you're like, well, who is going to be the kind of person who would live a life like that and put their family through, you know, it's going to be a very particular kind of leader who takes certain things. And I, this was actually, this was the beginning of my awakening, right? <laughs> if Oliver Sacks was writing my, my novel, this would be <laughs> the point at which I awaken from my stupor. And I'm like, wait a minute, you mean you don't just hire the best people and apply broadly across populations to find great leaders? You mean there's this very narrow ecosystem echo chamber of people who get into the higher ed leadership vortex and, and only through this tube of toothpaste are we going to get the subsequent finalists for the, you know, the sole finalist because nobody wants to go public that they were, you know, like. All of the things that are broken about this system is a big part of it is that you, I mean, like, I wouldn't put up with that, right? And so many really good people, really good leaders aren't going to put up with that kind of screening and vetting process. And so I do feel like we are culpable in higher ed of going to the well again and again from these same sources of leadership. Where the only people who are in that pool are the people who are narcissistic enough <laughs> to, to, to put everyone else's needs to the side and to say, this is what I want to do. Now, I just painted with a very broad brush there. But if you're a rookie looking at it from the outside in, why would you even get on that escalator to begin with? Yeah. Right. I have had three presidents that I can think of who were active presidents at the time, um, offer to mentor me into a presidency. And I, I didn't really understand what that offer meant. By, by which I mean, I didn't understand the way it was an invitation in that I might not get again. Right? Like I was like, oh, well, of course you would mentor me into a presidency. I'm awesome. Like, no, that's actually not, that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. it's, it's a fascinating world. And, and the the other tube of toothpaste that I think we're equally culpable of and need to um, do whatever you do with tubes of toothpaste. I don't know what how to play that metaphor out, but we keep referring people once they've been in leadership positions into the next leadership position, whether they did a good job or not. And, you know, I was reading this morning about Finlandia closing and the president saying, 
um, that now he feels ready to go lead an institution, but he won't get that opportunity because nobody hires presidents who've closed institutions. I'm like, actually, someone will hire you because we hire anybody who's been a president before. You like, you can you can do this. Like, and I'm not holding him responsible. He got there, and um, things had already happened. But it was just a, a moment when I thought. Um, there's a whole system that actually doesn't care about you as an individual. It's just if you've inhabited a certain kind of role, then door, certain doors will open for you. And if you haven't inhabited that role, then those doors won't open. Yes, yeah, I agree. And I think that's, yeah. I mean, it, it, the same thing happens in politics and in yeah. sports. <laughs> it's so like it's a human failing we have. <laughs> well, it, it's human failing and or it's the uh, least you know, going for the lo- lowest, com- the, the easiest yeah. decision. Yeah. Because it, everybody, if you're in a risk averse position, you go with like what you said before, like, I don't agree with you, but I understand your reasoning, right? So if you say, I want you to hire a new college president and you say, here's this amazing person who's never led a college before, but we think they'll do a great job versus here's somebody who's led six other colleges, you know, you're nobody's going to blame you for hiring somebody who's already run a college, but you, you know, what if you are the create this, you know, the spectacular failure by, by going out on a limb. And I think it does speak to the fact that there aren't better pipelines. I think I'm trying to remember, I'm pretty sure it's the case that within the Lutheran colleges, because I knew somebody who was in this role at Gustavus for a point there, there, there is a sort of, presidency path that like you become you you there is and so I'm, I'm assuming maybe some other college i mean it seems to me that that needs to be if we're really if that's what we really want is finding the best talent and putting people in the best position to succeed that we would do a better job of these pipelines but we we that's hard it, there's, so there's two things i always tell my students in my class that and we get to it and then I stick with it. And so the last day of class, these are the two things that I write on the whiteboard. So in the course of the mortgage crisis, when the, you know, the second financial, big financial crisis, there's a documentary with Hank Paulson, who was the secretary of the treasury under George Bush, who was uh, basically the guy to try to, you know, they did the bailout of Bear Stearns. They had to figure out how to save the American economy. But when he was talking about the mortgage securitization, where people's mortgages were bundled and collateralized debt obligations, and it was people were basically, it's kind of the cryptocurrencies kind of got this now, like, I'm going to get rich by investing in this thing. I have no understanding of how it works. And he said, complexity is the enemy of transparency. Mm. And so when we talk about supply chain, when you're talking about policies and procedures, when you talk about anything else, the more complex things are the less likely people are going to be to understand them. And if you think about Cass Sunstein and his book, Nudges, which has been sort of proven and sort of disproven, but this idea that simplification can really be a tool of, 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 of helping people make better decisions. So, and I'll give you a specific example from, from my executive, executive education from just this last year. Because so often, so complexity is the enemy of transparency. So often when we get into a leadership position, we inherit the ways things have been done. And we don't always re-engineer or upset the apple cart. So here is the policy. I am now the leader. 
I am now the enforcer of this policy. What is is it worth examining the policy? So imagine here I am teaching this groom of middle management executives about nudging and simplicity and you know, put the apples by the checkout so people won't eat a candy bar, right? Like help people make better decisions, right? Provide them with good choices. Because people love choices, but give them good choices to choose from. And one of the things I talked about was simplicity. I said, if, if a policy is too complex for people to understand to how to follow it, don't blame them for not following the policy when, when they don't know what to do because not 30 minutes later, the general counsel for this company said, I need, I want to, you know, I know you're, we booked you for three hours. I, I need the last half an hour. And I'm like, I, I, I get paid, you know, you get to wrap the little bow. And he said, okay, here's some things, here's some things. He goes, now let's, let's talk about the travel and expense policy. All of you have people who said, we're having a lot of problems with people who are submitting things to the travel and expense policy that aren't really reimbursable. Um, we've had several violations. And so, and I know it's so long that nobody probably even reads it, but you know, we need to really work on compliance with their very complicated travel and expense policy. And I was sitting in the car, I'm like, I just talked about this. I literally just said, if you have a policy that no one's following because it's too complicated, <laughs> don't blame the people. Right. It's the policy. And he had heard me say that. And then he was literally saying that with no awareness <laughs> that he was giving an example of what I had just talked about. Yeah. Complexity is the enemy of transparency. And then the last thing that I always close out with is if you look at what's going on in terms of the global, you know, whether it's electric batteries or semiconductors, you know, the mining and the human rights violations in places like in the Democratic Republic of Congo and other places around the world, you know, for us to have Teslas and beautiful Macintoshes and everything else, there's this, you know, we've got to get these minerals out of the earth. There are a lot of, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there is widespread militias and gang violence that are being fueled by, you know, all these things. And a guy who works for the Enough Project, which is an NGO that's trying to reduce human suffering in that part of the world, was talking about how auditing where these ores come from that go to the smelters to make the minerals, if you can figure out that these ores are coming from a mine that's funding violence and you stop buying from that mine, you can help reduce, right? And he said, it's difficult, but not impossible. And so I, I'd leave that with my students as well, that why do we have garments that are made by children in Bangladesh? Why do we have shrimp that are packed by indentured servants in Thailand? Why do we have environmental? Because it's cheaper. It's cheaper to cut corners with environmental and social because it costs a little bit more. It takes a little bit more time. It's difficult, but not impossible. And so the last day of my class, I make sure that's the last two things that I have right on the whiteboard. Complexity is the enemy of transparency and improving things can be difficult, but not impossible. And so, you know, really thinking about how, so let's, let's take it, take it over to a higher education situation. What if you have, what if you're like, why don't we have a more diverse faculty? 
why don't we have more women and, and BIPOC people getting tenure and becoming full professors? Well, how do people understand the shadow system of how you do that? Is it so complex that it hides the transparency? Oh, maybe so. Oh, and by the way, I would love to diversify my faculty and have more. Well, let's hire one. What if, right? We took a different approach. What if we did like Clemson University did when they decided that they were going to become the number one PhD granting institution of black computer scientists? Why don't we hire six African-American PhDs in computer science? Is, is that going to be an easy sell? No. Difficult? but not impossible, right? And and so I just hang on to both of those two things and say, okay, is what's happening here because people can't really see what's going on because it's so complicated? And then are we choosing the path of least resistance, hiring the mediocre college president who's already been a college president versus really truly going out there and creating pipelines and creating ways to create new leadership? And I, I just, I came to these organically through teaching the first few years I was teaching my class. And those two things have just stuck with me as, you know, if, if, if you can hang on to both of those from a reflective perspective, both of them almost always apply to making meaningful change. That was beautiful. <laughs> I'm going to put these up on my board. I love, I love this. And I, I'm, um, yeah. Complexity is the enemy of transparency. And also sometimes things are not just so complex that we can't understand them or that, that but sometimes people um, intentionally obscure things, make them complex when they could opt for transparency. I, I'm, I am sitting here racking my brain, trying to remember this type of grading. You'll know this type of grading. It's got a name. I swear to God, it starts with an A. I can picture the book except for the title but it's grading where you give the students parameters. It's not, it's like, it's, it's a contract grading is a form of this kind of grading, but you give the students parameters and if they meet the parameters, they get a grade. So it's not based on scores on individual assignments, but it's, it's way more holistic and it's really empowering. And it's also like the faculty who love it tend to be, fairly progressively minded humans <laughs> and it really makes traditional faculty very nervous um, because it's right it looks way more subjective it's actually not very subjective at all but I'm trying to remember what it's called but it strikes me that that's that kind of grading is has an effect like a, an, an analog to the kind of leadership you're describing where you you create the the expectations you are super clear about what counts as success um and then the way you get to that is open right i can get i can get to my your version of you just tell me what the what the goalpost is and let me get there in my best possible way okay so we we're supposed to read bullman and deal right? yep you want us to read do you want us to read nudges I'm not sure yeah i think so knowing knowing that it has not always it is presented as these will all work and it turns out they don't all work. Okay. So for example, uh, nudges are low stakes, low tech. Think of, think of reminders, think of uh, 
so one example of where it works is if I send you uh, uh, your power bill, your gas electric bill, and it says, here's how much you're paying. Here's the average amount the people in your neighborhood are paying. And if your number is bigger than this number, it might mean that you need more insulation or a better, more high efficiency furnace. So there's no shame going on here, but there is knowing kind of what more information, right? Yeah. That is a very effective nudge. Another one that's very effective is the little signs in the hotels that say only uh, we're trying to save water on towels. So uh, only put your, you know, only put your put towels on the floor that you want us to wash. But if you would reuse your towel, please keep it hanging. People keep their towels on the hanger. Like, I mean, they that's a nudge that helps people make a good decision because they've explained the why, right? Higher education gives us a very good example of one that doesn't work, which is getting people to fill out the FAFSA and to apply for financial aid. For whatever deeply complicated socioeconomic reasons and different experiences about college and everything else, no amount of text reminders, emails, everyone else has filled out a FAFSA, why haven't you? Nudges don't seem to work when it comes to getting people who haven't filled out financial aid to apply for financial aid, because we all know that dollars are left on the table every year, but otherwise very well deserved. So it's not a panacea, but I do think nudges is a good book to read because of the simplification thing. It goes to complexity as the enemy of transparency. Mm -hmm. Think of the travel and expense policy. That's so complicated that nobody will follow it. And the immediate response from the company is we need to enforce this more strictly. We need to punish people for this, as opposed to saying, wow, a good leader would say, if nobody can follow this policy because it's too complicated, maybe I need to either simplify it or change the way that it's presented so that it is actually effective, as opposed to when Wells Fargo had its huge blow up. And John Stump, who was the CEO at the time, and I think Elizabeth Warren just destroyed him on a congressional hearing. But when the Wells Fargo employees were creating those fake bank accounts, you know, to try to get, I don't know if you remember, yeah, all that. I clipped the Wall Street Journal and like I have the piece of paper. I took a picture of it, put it on a PowerPoint slide. Wells boss says staff at fault. <laughs> the immediate response from the CEO as to why is there this scandal of all your employees creating fake bank accounts to try to it's because it's their fault. Not we created the incentive structure that says you have to open so many bank accounts, but it's their fault for breaking the rules. Yeah. And to me, that's the ultimate example of, you know, not looking instead of looking at the complexity that you set up and the difficulty of, of your situation, you blame the, the ultimate stakeholder who can't keep up with what's going on as opposed to reassessing your processes. Right. So so nudges is good. Um, the Bowman and Deal book is good. I think the other thing that I would say, and and I am so in my own self, uh, trying to be a better person in the last year or so here, I had spent so much time working on my PhD in the academic literature, in the leadership literature, you know, that I had stopped reading literature and poetry. And so I just finished Donna Tartt's third book, The Goldfinch which I had already read The Secret History and The Little Friend, but I just spent, and it's a big, thick book, 
cycle of lots, you know, and I'm reading right now, I'm reading David McCullough's biography of John Adams. Mm -hmm. And it's based primarily on like over a thousand letters they have between John Adams and his wife during the whole time that we were writing the Declaration of Independence and everything else. So it's a historical book, but in the sense of being sort of researched, it's so here's the second president of the United States, the guy who was integral to all this stuff. But instead of somebody saying, this is what I think happened, they went and got the primary texts. Yeah. And, you know, this is not, you know, the Harvard bestseller, latest flavor of the month leadership thing right this is history and literature. so I, I i also think that um you know some of these folks get your virginia wolf get your emily dickinson right think about some of that i think that that we are if you're if all you're reading is technical leadership stuff you and back to my original comment to you about when i was originally an english major and now i'm teaching business ethics and it turns out that the ways of making meaning and thinking and describing and talking about the human condition and why we make decisions and what we do that I felt particularly well prepared by a deep study of literature is that when you go back, if you go back, if you are a person who studied the humanities and you've been, your head's been stuck in the, in the leadership business literature, modern day stuff, go back and you would be, you know, as my MBA student said, nothing you're saying here today is anything I haven't already heard. Right. Yeah. We're just looking at it from a, a different perspective. And I think some of those themes, some of those ideas, right, help it, it it's helpful, you know, just in terms of, of of context, in terms of nuance, in terms of some of those other things to 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 get, to get back into the art a little bit and the history and not so much the modern technical stuff. My flip side of that learning experience came this year as I, for the first time in my life, have bothered to read anything about marketing. And who knew marketing was storytelling? Not me. <laughs> I got into this and like, oh my God, like, I just felt like a whole window into my undergraduate education didn't open and could have opened. And but it, it gives me a whole different way to think about um, what it is you do when you talk to people about something you want them to want or something you think they want, but you you know they're not articulating. It's just, it's fascinating. The book I want to pick up is this, Inciting Joy. So he's a poet, but um, this is a collection of essays. And what I really love about it is that Inciting Joy is about also sitting with grief because you only experience joy as a counterpoint to something else. And right. so it's not a, you know, cheerful Pollyannish, everything smiles and happiness, but it's about like the really beautiful moments in life are also grounded in something probably really painful. And that's, what's actually really beautiful about the whole thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Rand, thank you so much for this conversation. You're welcome. All right, my friend, now that we're done, I want you to do two things for me. 
First, choose one thing that came to mind while you were listening. Maybe it was something we talked about, or maybe it was something that occurred to you while you were listening. It doesn't matter. Just put it into practice this week. I want you to take action. It can be imperfect action, inspired action, scared to do this new thing action. I don't care. Just take action. Don't overthink it. Don't talk yourself out of it. Just do it. And then second, tell me how it goes. DM me on LinkedIn or Instagram or shoot me an old-fashioned email at carol at theclariogroup.com. And once you tell me what you tried, you'll be entered into a monthly drawing for a $20 gift certificate to bookshop.org. You'll get to expand your learning and I'll get to help you build your library. It's a win for both of us. So that's it. Try something out and then tell me how it went. I can't wait to hear from you.